I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone. It's really beautiful to see you all. Hi, thank you for coming. It's a joy and a privilege for me to be with you again, Day. Thank you. Thank you very much for your book, The Psychosis of Whiteness. Mm. I've read it. That's good. I've reviewed it for The Observer. <laughs> Hopefully um, it was good. I don't know. It'd be, be a bit awkward. Yeah, it would be really <laughs> awkward. It'd be really awkward. But I already have so much confidence in you and your scholarship and your perspective. So yeah. I knew that I would agree with most of it. Most <laughs> Not of it. all of it. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, but first, just start by telling us why you wrote it. I can't say money, right? That would be no. I actually have joke. No, I actually have. If joking. you read the book, by the way, Hinde has a, a beautiful tendency towards honesty and plain speaking, which no, is very but, refreshing. Um, no, I wanted. I wrote it because <laughs> I'll get that out of my head now. No, money. no, no, it wasn't. I didn't make does that much book, money. Does, so. does writing a book on the psychosis of whiteness make you rich, Hinde? Let's see. It depends. <laughs> on the book. No, why did I write the book? So in 2016, I wrote an article called "The Psychosis." What was it called? I think it was called "Psychosis of Whiteness." It was about you know, there's two movies about slavery in Britain, like two, one, two. One was about William Wilberforce and one was about Belle. Amazing Grace and Belle. Amazing Grace and Belle. Belle's the on, probably the only black woman who was raised in a mansion house. And that's the movie they chose to tell, right? And me, I've never been a whiteness person. I write black radicalism, black stuff. But I watched this movie and I was so bemused, annoyed, angry. I don't even know. I had a lot of emotions. And I was at a time where I was reading a lot of critical, critical whiteness studies literature, and it all just seemed like nonsense, I'll be honest. And so I wrote the article and basically said, these movies are like hallucinations. So psychosis has, two, like, the, the psychosis has these definitions where it's distorted from reality, completely irrational, which I think we could all agree is most of the debate about race and whiteness in the UK. But then these, these movies seem like they were hallucinations that, that reinforce the psychosis. So I wrote that and it went down well. And then I was just thinking, is there more examples you can use over the movies? And I was like, yeah, there's lots of them. There's a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was probably going on TV a lot and talking to people like um, Piers Morgan. Heard of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who, I did write this in the book. It's really fun to wind him up. And I only, really, I only knew what the term gammon meant when I saw him go red. And I was like, okay, yeah, I get that. Now. And having all these this discussions on TV, it was so obvious you can't have a rational conversation. But it's impossible. Doesn't matter how many evidence you have, how much argument you have, it's, it's like it's like talking to somebody who's 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 broken. 
and so that's that's why I thought the book might, might be useful. Um, and in it, particularly, one of the chapters that I, I think we probably disagree with a little bit is there is so much work on race at the minute, particularly post George Floyd. But I think it's actually worse than if there was no work on race. Talking about race can actually make the problem worse. And I think we need. I, I wanted to have an intervention that just said we need to completely rethink what we're doing and do differently. So there's a lot to unpick there and we'll get to everything, but just kind of coming to your initial motivation for writing the book and you you mentioned those movies and you write in the book about the epistemology of ignorance, Mm. as you describe it. We are in a moment where there has been a mushrooming, I mean, starting from an incredibly low base, so it's still not anything like the kind of parity there should be, but there has been uh, a a noticeable change in the number of black storytellers, books, film, theatre, is that doing anything to change that epistemology of ignorance or do you see the mainstream narrative as remaining as selective, amnesiatic and ignorant as it always has been? Yeah, so the last couple of years has been a bit different, I think. Um, Michaela Coles, um, what was it called again? I May Destroy You. I May Destroy You was different. But then you have Top Boy in like series A Million, whatever series Top Boy's in. And you see actually the dominant representation of black people still is... Ghetto, gang, violence. And Top Boy being an example of a story that was created by a white writer. and it's still written by a white. It's not like they didn't even change the writer. It's still written by a white writer. Um, And so you can still see that's in the imagination. Things about slavery, history, they just what? Now they just put black characters in white things. I I don't even know what's that about. I was actually quite triggered by the fact that The Woman King, which actually I enjoyed, was written by two white women. Mm. And I think it's very interesting how they market projects like this because... (laughs) Obviously, a very talented black director, very talented black cast. But I bet most people in here didn't know that that movie was written by two white women. And this is a story that's quite foundational in the West African canon of oral history and literature that I think, and I actually know, many writers of African heritage have wanted to, pitched, developed stories about uh, female warriors in ancient African kingdoms. But the story that got through the Hollywood gatekeeping just so happens to have been written by... I did not know that. I I literally almost spat my tear. If I wasn't in public, it would have been... (laughs) (laughs) No, and and the Woman King... So the Woman King's a perfect example. Actually, like Black Panther... Oh, God, not Black Panther. Yeah, Black Panther. I mean, I would put them in slightly... Maybe we'll get to that too. In slightly different... At least least the Woman King is ostensibly an actual, based on actual historical events. Yeah, but then they just lie so badly. That's true. So, and so my problem with The Woman King is manyfold. <laughs> manyfold. One, what's a woman king? So the movie kind of has this idea that there's somehow parity. I mean, it's not really parity. It's a deeply problematic role anyway. Also, we are talking about, it does deal with slavery. And actually, these warriors were, not one of their jobs was to enslave people, right? Yeah, actually. they were deeply involved um, in the slave trade. But then can't deal with that history because it's white people probably. And it is a history we need to deal with. So then just pretends they were anti-slavery, which is complete nonsense. Like, it's not yeah. true at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, is that true? So you end up having to make the historical distortions to fit the narrative you want. So we have powerful, strong black women, but then we're actually not really looking at the context of which that is in, which is limiting both by gender and certainly by race. Okay, so speaking about film and TV that is uh, centering white people, we've actually been on Piers... Have we been on Piers Morgan together? We talked about uh, the book, yes, actually. Yes, and yes, um, I do feature the royal, the royal family. Not in... We don't, I wasn't mean. disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> At least um, I wasn't mean. You can be honest, no, Kahinde and I have... We've, we have appeared on TV together more than once. Yes. And I personally have really 
of the various experiences I've had in hostile white spaces on TV, the ones where I with you were the most enjoyable because it wasn't me as the sole representative of everyone who isn't white, <laughs> racist and problematic yeah. trying to defend our collective humanity, which yeah. uh, is really the reason why I think it's an interesting conversation. And I've stopped doing those kind of TV appearances mm -hmm. because I started to realize that it's entertainment yeah. and it's driving audiences mm -hmm. to channels who are profiting from yeah. dehumanizing us and then asking us to come and defend our humanity. Yeah. And one, I realized the toll it was taking on me, which I actually, if you'd asked me at the time, how do you do that? Which people always did. I'm yeah. sure they ask you. Mm -hmm. I would have said, it's fine. I'm equipped. You know, yeah. I, I have the skills to do it. I think it's important that my voice is heard. Yeah. I reach an audience who need to understand how to yeah. navigate. We all experience these conversations, mm. unfortunately, in our workplaces and yeah. sometimes in our families. But then I started to feel like I was being complicit in a discourse that I, I don't think is acceptable. Yeah. So I'm curious how you and you think so deeply about these questions and you write about it. Yeah. But Tell us, we're well, here today, how, why you engage in those spaces and, and how you experience that. Yeah, so for me, like, um, partly so I, I, the idea of psychosis is important in that space and also other white spaces, is that we can, if, we, if, if I go into those, and I'm trying to make Piers Morgan or, actually, he's not actually the worst. The worst for me are like Richard Madeley, like the, just the really mediocre, passive-aggressive. You are singularly oh. unflattering about yeah. Richard Madeley. <laughs> <laughs> It's not even entertainment, it's just, yeah. <laughs> One time I was speechless, actually speechless. Um, but um, you're not going to convince them. So if, if, if I go there and invest thing, and then I, this is when we can start to feel like we're crazy, right? Because they're really denying, literally denying our actual humanity. Yeah. Which is what I'm trying to say in the book is, you have to understand that for what it is. You're not going to change them. I don't go there trying to, it's not about them at all. The reason I keep going on these shows is because black people will stop me in the street and say, oh, I saw you on Good Morning Britain. I saw this. And, and I always have a script in my head. which so I'm going to say this, 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 and this. I don't really care what the question is. I just want to say, I just want to say this. Political career beckons. <laughs> yeah. and, and black people actually really have. That has been the place where I'm most well known from. And, and I think they're like, well, look, it was good to, we have to have this conversation. It was good that somebody's saying what we want to say. And so for me, that's the audience. I'm, I, I understand the spectacle thing and I know it's all, I'm being exploited for a different audience, but there is another audience who actually do, does find it empowering. But find it, it is one of the many contradictions that we, and I say we because I, I have to answer this, I have to hold myself accountable for this as well, that we have to navigate. So the message of your book, if I were to summarise it, is to stop trying to appeal to white people yeah. and to concentrate on doing what we need to do yes. for our own liberation. Mm -hmm. But obviously there's a contradiction if you go on to white spaces and TV and talk to white people about how you're not going to talk to white people. Or you publish a book that's going to be read by a large white audience about how you don't really care about engaging with white audiences. Mm -hmm. So how do you navigate the contradiction of that? And do you ever question whether it's hypocrisy? So look, I would, honestly, it'd be great if we had the platforms ourselves that we didn't have to do this, but we don't. This does not, they don't exist, right? So in order to get to those platforms that we can have that, we need to, we need to use what is there. And that's, not like any, that's not different than anything else. All of us have jobs. I'm a, prof I'm a professor. Professor's one of the most racist jobs you can do. Historically, currently, it is awful. It's a title which I never use unless I need money. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I'm, that's that, that, but that is the, that's the hypocrisy we have to live through. And actually, part, that's not, I don't think I did do this in the book, but I was talking to David Harewood one day, uh, last Monday, and 
there's this thing which te- W.E.B. Du Bois, African American mm-hmm. scholar, talks about the two-ness of being African, being black, and being American, mm-hmm. and you're always trying to, you know, you have to navigate this place, you have to do this, you have to do that, um, and how that tears us apart. Mm-hmm. And what's really helped me because I like Malcolm X, and so Malcolm just says, "Well, you're not American," and then then there's no two-ness, right? Mm-hmm. I'm black, I'm I'm here, I have to be here, I have to do the job, I have to get paid, I have to do this stuff, but I'm not British. I'd never say I'm British. I'm just here. And the blackness for me is a thing which is, is, is a thing which connects me. And I don't have to do... When we stop having to worry about how do we fit in, how do we do this, how do we do this, how do we... It makes your life a lot easier. And that's... So for me, it's not hypocrisy. It's just we ain't really got a choice. I didn't choose to be here. I'm here. You make the best of what you've got. But try to use that to do something else. I think one of the things I find so refreshing about your work is that there is such a... You know, along with the kind of increasing diversity that we're seeing is an increasing assimilationist pressure that now it's so easily celebrated that there's, you know, now three black people in this organization where there was once (laughs) one, you know, there's kind of like a token black character in every period drama. And even that's controversial. uh, controversial. So you are really going hard at rejecting that idea that we should be really happy that we're British. We should be really happy that we're let in. If there's a few of us in every establishment space, that's some kind of progress. I mean, it's like you reject that wholesale. No, oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, like, so for instance, there's 150 black professors in the UK. Um, that's like one for each university. <laughs> <laughs> if I always joke, you can't, we can't all get a plane together just in case there's an accident. Right? Yeah. So it wouldn't even be a big plane. It'd be like a small one of those small little planes. Um, but you're not going to hear me ever argue for, let's, look, I will support people to get into the profession. Mm-hmm. But if we had 600 professors, would this make a difference? No, 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 no not at all. What we have to work on is if, look, if, if, if you're saying you want to be British, then it's about how do you radically alter the institutions. Mm-hmm. I'm saying let's build other completely different institutions, but definitely the idea that we should just be trying to fix, fit ourselves into what currently exists, that is the thing that means that we are more likely to suffer serious mental health problems, and that's what we should avoid at all costs. And I think time is helping in the sense that if the answer to the problems of structural racism were more black people getting in, then the world would look very different than it does right now. Mm. Um, It's interesting you mentioned David Harewood because he wrote a book, uh, Psychosis and Me, that was, I thought, very honest account of his struggles with his mental health and also the way he experienced the violence of the health system um, when he needed help, really. He Mm -hmm. was met with violence like so many black men, particularly, as we know. I thought it was interesting that you chose to use the word psychosis Mm -hmm. when talking about whiteness. And you addressed this in the book, and I thought I actually addressed it really well. But I can imagine someone like David, who's worked really hard to destigmatize psychosis, feeling that using psychosis as a way of describing something bad is a problematic thing to do. So just tell us about why you chose the word psychosis and and how you kind of rationalized using the word that way here. Yes, one of the reasons I asked him to come and do the first talk mm. was I was interested, like, what do you think? Mm. Like, um, and he got it 100%. Like, mm. He was 100% understood the argument, which is one, psychosis as a term is terrible. Like, it's not, it's not an objective medical di- diagnosis. Mm. It's actually often used, psychosis and schizophrenia are used inter- interchangeably. In the, in the, so that's telling you something in itself, the history of psychosis. And actually, David's doing a documentary on the history of psychosis. And I do do this in the book where... Early on, it was a white middle-class woman disease. That's how they saw it. It was, you know, people are too intelligent or they've gone off. The, and it's not, there's no violence associated to it. You're not heavily medicated. And only psychosis, as we understand it now, dangerous, violent, aggression, have to be sectioned and all this. This was in the 60s in America with black power and civil rights. 
when they say, look, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself. And it becomes a black disease. And we are seven times, say no, eight times more likely to be diagnosed with a psychotic illness. We are seven times more likely to be sectioned if you're black Caribbean, black African. Fifteen more times more likely to be sectioned if you are black other, which is probably black British. I mean, it's a black other category. And so, actually, the term is awful. Like, it's, I really, I, I'm, when I, I use it, it's, it's something we need to problematize. And there's a problematic history for it. And so I wanted to flip this and say, actually, no, it's not us that are crazy. It's the world we have to deal with is crazy, and that's what then leads to us losing our, uh, losing our minds. And the David Harewood example was perfect. I mean, he literally explains how it was a racism he experienced in, in drama school. It was a rejection from the black community because mm-hmm. he was a black actor playing these stereotypical roles. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King is the voice talking to him when, he, when he's in his psychotic episode. So he understood. He was like, yeah, this is about race, 100%. And him understanding that has helped him not have another psychotic episode since then. You write really um, compellingly in Ireland a lot about the history of mental health and how racialized it's been from the outset. And also just how completely unhinged so many pioneering mental health doctors have been. I mean, their views are terrifying. (laughs) It was really, I I mean, I kind of knew that it was bad, but I didn't realize it was that bad. The devil is in the detail. It really is. Um, There was one psychiatrist, A.B. Evans, who wrote, you wrote it in the book, Bondage is a great aid to the colored man. And as I read that, I was actually thinking about our contemporary politics. That was in 1913, but I was thinking about Ron DeSantis. Mm. I spend a lot of time in the US. I know you go to the US as well. And we have a governor in a major state in the US who's saying that slavery was good for black people because it taught them personal skills. So what's your analysis of our contemporary? I mean, and it's not just in America. We have politicians in the UK who openly admire. I mean, when Ron DeSantis came to the UK, Kemi Bardenov was the first government minister to meet him. No, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Somehow I'm not surprised. So our black female <laughs> minister yeah. welcoming... Your black female minister. <laughs> 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 yeah. see what you did there. <laughs> are, we, yeah. are we going backwards right now? Yeah, and I think this is why this history... The history is not past, it's present. It's still yeah. here. And if you actually look at these ideas, there's so much in the literature early early 20th century, and even before then, the black people can't be free. So one of the, there's a slave, uh, Dr. Samuel Cartwright, who has this term, Drake-tomania, you may have come across, and he basically said, look, if black people run away, it's because we're mad, we're insane, because why would he want to leave? The slavery is good for us. And he, and this is where it's not just mental health, it's just health in general is deeply racist. He basically had this theory that we don't, black people's lung capacity is lower, which is why we are inferior, because we don't get enough red blood cells, um, and therefore we slow it. And so slavery is good for us because when we get whipped, we start moving faster, and this means we get more, more red blood cells, and then we're cleverer. Like, this, this is honestly what it's right now. And that's, <laughs> that's what we need to be slavery. So when we run away, obviously we must be mad, because we're better. And that, that sounds so unreal from the, the, the past, but you write about how tests of lung capacity continued on that premise until... Not today, they still continue. They still, so yeah. there's still an assumption that black people have lower lung capacity. Yeah. And actually, you track where that comes from. It's firstly, Thomas Jefferson, slave owner, mm-hmm. <laughs> no evidence. Secondly, Samuel Cartwright, slave owner, no evidence. Then they, in the American Civil War, they, they do test lung capacity of black people and white people, but these are enslaved black people. So there's probably a good reason why you would, they would have lower lung capacity. And that's it. That's your actual body of evidence for black people have lower lung capacity. Yeah, in the UK, which has nothing to do with the US and has completely wide range of black people here, they actually still use race correction for lung capacity. So that idea, I can't breathe, like literally they're telling you you can't breathe. 
And it's not even just lung capacity. It was kidneys. There's a similar racist logic about kidney function. So they expect our kidney function to be worse. So it's harder to get on dialysis if you bled. In the UK, again, no evidence in the UK at all. Only after George Floyd 2020, they, re- they removed that criteria. And in America, it's still being... It's, medicine is... Like, we have this idea that medicine is objective. And mm-hmm. it's, absolutely not. Medicine is deeply racist. And this is why, again, using a term like this is to problematize it. Yeah. And say, you don't, don't take the term seriously. Yeah. We, have to, we have to rethink it. Yeah. Um, it's one of so many parts of this book that are important and educational. Even if you know about this subject matter, there's so much to learn. One thing I did not fully agree with in the book, you've already kind of touched on it, is the way you talk about other anti-racism work. And it's actually a really important part of your message in this book. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about it. So you already mentioned it. You, you, ha- you, think, you feel that the way that whiteness studies are evolving is not only not ideal, but actually detrimental yeah. to black liberation. Yeah. So explain why you think that. Yeah, because what we have, like with EDI initiatives, um, even race relations reports, sewage report is a good example, <laughs> the sewer report. If you, if you do something that's supposed to address a problem but doesn't address a problem, that's worse than not doing anything at all. Because in institutions, people think we've done something and we haven't. And so all of this particularly critical whiteness EDI training, there's no evidence it works. Like zero, actually all the evidence says it doesn't work. Yet companies will spend thousands of pounds they give me money sometimes to come and do it. And again, I don't say no to money. So if you want me to come, if you want me to come in, I'll do it. But I think the best thing, the, the, my favorite example in the book is Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo, White right Fragility. fragility yeah. Look, she's published by Penguin, so I shouldn't be too, too, too bad about it. But, but nah, come on. Like, no, one, you just, what you often end up happening is you get rehashed ideas from black scholars. Like, white Fragility is not a new idea. Believe me, you can find that many, many, many places. Um, and then there's a, and there's, there's a bit where she admits that even though she's been doing this anti-racism training for ages, she still gets called out for her racist assumptions. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, you wouldn't pay an alcoholic to, 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 to go for an AA meeting, but you can pay her $30,000, $30,000, you know, a time to talk through her white fragility. The madness. Why are you doing this? Stop. Like, <laughs> just stop, stop, stop immediately. And there's so many things like that. And, and, and also, again, having someone, this is, this is 100% hypocritical, as I do get paid to come into institutions mm-hmm. and do nonsense. Um, <laughs> I know the reason they're doing it is so they can say we bought Professor Kyan Daniels yeah. they haven't changed anything in, the, in yeah. the place it's still exactly the same they just feel better about it because they, yeah. they spent a couple I of I think all of us who do that kind of corporate anti-racism work know whether very cognizantly or deep down that it's not going to create any radical change yeah. and that someone somewhere is ticking a box and you only have to speak to the black employees that are in those sessions like off the record afterwards to hear what they're actually going through yeah. and you know that what you've just done, well intentioned as it is, is not going to yeah. change that. So none of the things you've said just there, I actually disagree with. What I had, what I took issue with <laughs> was that you single out quite a few black scholars, especially black women, whose work you're very critical of. And I'm, I appreciate your critique, and I pre- absolutely appreciate your right to have a critique. But I, I was a little bit surprised that you would would attack black women who are in the space of trying to talk about racism, talk about black liberation. You don't agree with their approach, which is focusing on allyship and anti-racism. And journaling. And journaling. Well, let's, we'll talk about the pleasure activism separately. Oh, pleasure that that, that, that deserves its own little conversation. But just generally, do, I mean, I, I felt uncomfortable about that because I felt that 
especially when it's black people, and, and I'm not yeah. talking about black Tories, I'm talking about Sewell and yeah. Bardnock, who is, is, is fair game as far as I'm concerned, like gloves are off. But with, <laughs> with people who are kind of in the camp of yeah. being pro-black, why did, you, why did you decide to take that approach? So I think, I think it's a testament to where we've had some change that, yeah, there were a lot of black women, but it wasn't because they were women. I don't think there's anything particularly gendered about it. Maybe there is. Maybe I'm blind on this one. But there also had lots of black women who write stuff which I think is good. Mm-hmm. I was told to cite black women, so I did. Uh, this was very <laughs> critical. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm really going to get in trouble for this <sighs> No, right? it wasn't just black women. There was a token of black man in the, in the, in the section of Murder yes, of Yes, Ibram X. Kendi, if anyone's heard of him, he also chat. comes in for some, some shots And I know Ibram as well, so he probably, won't, he probably won't with my friend afterwards. But, um, I mean, I think it's healthy that we can criticise and critique each other. I'm, by the way, for the record, I don't think we should all say that everything yeah. we all do is great all the time. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I thought that there, I agreed with your, uh, much of your critique, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I think that focusing on allyship, focusing on anti-racism. Well, so this is how I see it. Yeah. I like to separate racial intelligence, which I think mm-hmm. everyone needs. And on a personal level, everybody should strive to develop. And black liberation, which yeah. is radical. And I don't think one necessarily leads to the other. Yeah. But I don't think it's bad if people develop racial intelligence. So if people read Robin D'Angelo and it helps them understand their whiteness and it helps them be more conscious of how race works, yeah. I think that's useful. I don't think it's going to create a revolution, but I don't think it's useless. Whereas you are kind of saying this doesn't lead to black liberation and it's not revolutionary and it's a waste of time. And actually it's bad because it's distracting us yeah, from so, the real yeah. struggle. So the reason I put that in, because I wasn't, I was just honestly interested in what are the best-selling books <laughs> on race. <laughs> I just, I, I listen to them. I don't really read anymore. I tell my kids I'm a professor. I don't have to read. You have to read. I can, I can listen to books now, right? And actually my, my, my late wife comes in the kitchen while I'm washing up. So gender, I'm, I'm, this is a true story. I'm not, not making me sound more gender neutral. What's the word? I don't know. Whenever. I'm washing up, listening to the book. One of the books. I won't say which book. I mean, you've already named them all, so... <laughs> well, this was one of the better books, actually. This was a okay. Crystal Fleming's book. Um, okay. So you want to talk about race. Mm-hmm. And Nicole came in and she said, she was in for a bit, and she said, why are you listening to a pamphlet? And I was like, what do you mean? She said, this is nonsense. She actually said, this is nonsense. And I was like, well, yeah, it's a bit weak. I mean, it's a bit introductory. But she was mad. She was madder than me. And that was like the... Of all the books, I'd say that's probably one of the, one of the better ones. But what you're getting in these books is, is a, a watered-down version of black radical ideas. And some of the books, Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad, mm-hmm. I mean, that is a journal your way through white supremacy. And I listened to the book, so it's possible I missed its healing power. I don't know. Maybe I mean, I would say in Leila's events, and I don't know Leila, but I do appreciate her work. I don't think you're necessarily the target audience. And this may, this may be one well, of your issues, but, but there are authors, black women included, who are writing books for people who don't have much racial intelligence because they've grown up in this country and being conditioned by our totally dysfunctional education and media systems, mm. who are starting kind of from scratch. I mean, if you haven't done the work yourself, you're starting from scratch. And their idea is that it's helpful to reach those people. Now, it's not a substitute for more revolutionary and radical work, but it's still helpful because, on I suppose, and, and, and this is really another thing that you do talk about in the book, is it's an over-focus on individualism, that, you know, you, the, the reaching individuals to unpick their whiteness and yeah. understand race isn't going to change the system. But I can still understand why they are trying to reach people. Yeah, but the problem is, so this is, this is another reason I wrote the book, the problem is when you reach people in that way, 
it shouldn't be a comfortable, if you're having a, a conversation about rent, not just for white people, for us as well, it shouldn't be a comfortable conversation. And all the books, and even publishers try to say, like, can you be nicer at the end? Can you be more, can you be more, I don't know, optimistic? And I always make it less optimistic on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's not the way to reach, if you reach people in that way, it makes people feel better. I mean, Leila Saad has a whole chapter on leaning into racial discomfort. Just yeah, saying. That's like, that's like a Renier de Lodge's book, Why I Don't Talk to White People About Race. It's for white people, like... Sometimes the things aren't telling you what they really are. Which is why you're not the target audience. I know, yeah, and I admit, look, I, I, I'm not the audience for an introductory book to racism. So I'm not going to like it, right? I'm going to be like, <laughs> what is this? This is stupid. What are we talking about? But I think there's a danger that when you come out of this conversation or this, this training and you feel like you're an ally, you're on the right path. You're not on the right path. The world is terrible. Racism is deeply structured into how the world works. And if you believe that, if you actually honestly believe that journaling is going to make any difference, that's, a, that's the wrong way. It's not just... It's not just, it doesn't matter, it's actually taking you in the wrong direction, I would say. If you're um, critical of journaling, you are scathing about what you describe as pleasure activism. I didn't describe it as pleasure activism, that's what it's called. That's what it's called. I, yeah, it's what it's called. <laughs> it is what it's called. Let's talk about pleasure activism. <laughs> I, I, re- I always remember you, the first time I ever met you, we had a conversation where we were talking about the kind of rise in self-care. And you said, and you said it again in this book, but I remember you saying it to me, it's called the struggle for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to be scented. It's true. So so what's going on? What a pleasure. (laughs) So pleasure activism is a particular, so it's Adrian Adrian Marie Brown, she's Mm -hmm. African-American. And again, it's best-selling. So these are best-selling books. And she basically makes this argument that we need to embrace our pleasure and the more pleasure we can have. And then everybody, if everybody has pleasure, then we're, I don't know, rainbows and puppies or something. I, don't, I didn't really understand. But it was very, very much about saying push away negative feelings, make space for yourself and do this, make space. And it's so indulgent nonsense. Because, yeah, look, as a professor, I do have time. Yeah, I, can get, I can go and pamper myself if I want to. But I, I got students who, they have to work like full-time jobs and do university work. They, and they ain't got no money. Or... Like my mom's, my mom's generation, my grandmother worked in the NHS for years and donkeys. She ain't got time or money for this stuff. So what we're actually doing is we're, we're missing the point that, that the world isn't great. And, and, that's, and this is, so the next book's a Malcolm X book, which is, they're all, Mac, to be honest, they're all Malcolm X books, to be honest. But a, a big part of what I try to do this is say, what the psychosis does is it makes us think that we're moving, we're making progress. If you actually look at the state of the world today, a child dies every 10 seconds because they haven't got access to food and water. More people die every year than from, just from poverty than die from COVID at all. Um, most people don't have an indoor toilet. Most people in the world live in the same conditions they lived in 100 years ago. Whereas we're here and saying, well, let's go and make sure you have, go and pamper yourself and get your nails done. I don't know. It's, it's no, this is not, this is, this is what I'm saying is worse than doing nothing. I'd rather we did nothing than did that. I'll be honest. It makes me mad. <laughs> I, I won't dwell on this, but I would just say, I do think yeah, that exists, but there is also a strain of the pleasure activism, which is it's attempting to be a critique of capitalism. And it's attempting to take the scenarios you just said about your students who have to work two jobs and your relatives who've worked in the NHS, that white supremacist capitalism has assimilated us into the economy on the basis of grind, that our bodies belong to capitalism. 
And so rejecting that in some way, whether that's through rest, whether that's through self-care, whether that's through seeking pleasure, is a rejection of our conditioning, which as black people, I think many of us have been raised by people who have had to grind, who have conditioned us to grind, who have instilled in us the only way you can survive in this society is to grind. And that people, and especially women, are starting to question that through the toll it takes on their physical and mental health. And, and trying to reclaim their well-being as a step to beginning to reject white supremacist capitalism. Now, I'm not saying that if you take a nap, everything will be okay. But I do personally have time for anything that critiques the ways in which we've been brainwashed by white, white supremacist capitalism. As a, as an, and I think that is part of the psychosis, that the idea that it's normal to spend your entire life trying to feed an economic system that caused our destruction and will continue to. Yeah, but then... Let's say Harriet Tubman said, you know, I'm going to take a nap rather than go... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Harriet Tubman did also take naps. They're not mutually exclusive. (laughs) She had to sleep sometimes. (laughs) But it's the the idea that, yeah, I agree, but if we're going to overturn these systems, then we need to be working to overturn these systems. So I'm saying you have to grind, but grind in the right way, Mm -hmm. which is organisation, which is not self-indulgent. And I don't want to say self-indulgent because I'm trying to... I know this is a blind spot for me. Like, I'm... I'm a, Malcolm X, my favorite, not my favorite quote, the quote I was told never to say in public, <laughs> I, I live like a man who's dead already. Like, mm-hmm. the idea that you just, that's, that's, that's what it is. There's no time for anything else. I get what you're saying, but then at the same time, we can't be comfortable. And I think anything that's making us comfortable in mm-hmm. the system is ultimately bad. Because mm-hmm. we're supposed to be uncomfortable. It is really, it's worse than we thought. And we have to work to, to change it. But yeah, have a nap. It's fine. I have, I have naps. <laughs> a sentiment which I do really share yeah. that's very clear in the book is I feel you're frustrated with us as a black community, as a global black diaspora, that there's a sense of people kind of giving up on the real pursuit of black liberation, of taking small gains yeah. as wins. You know, Disney makes Wakanda. We're good. The Little Mermaid is a woman of color. We're achieving we have a black president in the White House, job done. I mean, in yeah. fairness, I don't know anyone who thinks that <laughs> at you? all. No, maybe that says more about my... I, I'm, uh, actually, unfortunately, I do. But oh, you do? Uh, I do know Kemi Badnuk. That's a whole other story oh, God, for a whole other story. day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> am I right in sensing that frustration? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. So that's what I was going to say about the Malcolm X book. So Malcolm has, and in the book I talk about mm. house Negro, field Negro, and... It's a really important, I think it's important to use those kind of terms, but use them well. Do you want to explain for anyone who hasn't listened to that Malcolm X speech or read his biography yeah. about so, the house Negro and field Negro, which is a, it's become a, it's kind of a concept that lives on and on in black discourse as a yeah. way of framing how we behave in, in yeah. white society. And yeah, so the house, so what he's essentially arguing is that it's not the perfect metaphor for many reasons, but the, the enslaved who were in the house had slightly better conditions, right? They weren't out in the field, they weren't getting whipped all the time. They were closer to the master, so they had more affection. But again, that's not always a good thing. Um, but they had better food, slightly better food, slightly better clothes. And because of that, they felt they were in a better position. They loved their master more than their master loved themselves. And they became like, and, and they became totally devoted, right? And then the field Negro, on the other hand, they're, they're catching the lash, right? They're catching hell. Because of that, they understand racism and they hate the master and they want to burn down the plantation and they want revolution. And so what he's warning against is saying, look, you don't want the hash Negro mentality because you're still a slave. Like he's saying, look, you're still enslaved, you're still getting racism, but you think like our government. Well, now you're invested in it. Now you're invested in it and you're supporting it and you're promoting it. 
which is why I never say I'm British, right? That's part of that part of that rejection. And so Malcolm's saying nowadays you can see that with people who are like Kemi Badenoch would be a good example. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I'm going to do in the in, I didn't do it in this book in the, in the next book is to flip that slightly. In that one of the one of the things that has happened 50 years ago before the Racial Relations Act and legislation. Black people here were very much in the field. Like, you couldn't get particular jobs. I couldn't be professor. As I said before, it's unlikely I'm a professor now, but 50 years ago, forget it. But what has changed is that now we can, to some extent, we're still racially excluded, we still, but we've got welfare state. If you're, even if you're black and live in the UK, you're still in the top 94% richest people in the world because of how bad the world is. And so I'd say the house field now is, is global. And actually, so much of our politics in Britain is just about how do we get into this terrible, wicked system. And we're not thinking about the field. The field Negro is, is the, the, the child in Congo who's, who's having to go down to get the coltan for our mobile phones. And, but our politics is so house Negro politics, which produces pleasure activism. That's a perfect example <laughs> of house Negro politics. And what I would say is we need to, we, we to reject that and go to the politics of the field, which is the politics of revolution. I'm just going to play devil's advocate. Well, not really. I actually think this. Just like problematize that, though. Yeah. Because our grandparents, for example, much as they were in the field in the sense that this country came at them with no love, with, for us, unimaginable hostility yeah. and violence. Because of colonisation, many of them believed in Britain yeah. and believed in the imperial project much more than our generation does. Yeah. And being born here and, and feeling entitled to Britishness yeah. has made our generation, I would say, much more literate in mm-hmm. contemporary racism and more critical of the British establishment. And many of us were raised by people who thought that assimilation was, was progress for yeah. us. So even this, the, the paradox that even though it was worse for them, they yeah. bought into yeah. it more. Do you feel any optimism about the level of consciousness of the generation that's talking at least about decolonizing, that is more engaged with the truth about colonial history, that is more literate in the concept of white supremacy, even if some of it is manifesting in allyship, pleasure activism, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the way and house Negro feel Negro. Like, so technically, like economically, I'm a house Negro. No doubt about it. Like, just am. Can't make any other argument. But mentality-wise, it's important. Mm. And so you can have, like you said, the, who's the most British person I not ever knew is my grandmother, mm. who had a picture of the Queen by her, in her room for, until she died. She, she would strongly hate everything that I say. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally. She'd have been queuing up for that empty box when the queen died you notice the queen was not in the box she was not in the coffee I'm going to tell you this right now she was not in the coffee but anyway hold on all that time I stood waiting you wait 24 hours and she's not even in this anyway so but and there has been a generational change but I think so the way the generational changes it's kind of my dad's generation that have the, re- the revolutionary politics because in the 60s there is a broader revolutionary politics around the world people are coming through Britain and they're, and they're talking about revolution and I think what actually happened in the 80s is we kind of this is when black Britishness became a thing and we and particularly black people really tried to get into mainstream institutions my dad did it in fact became a lawyer I did it became a professor and that was a dead end I would say 100% that was a dead end that, that has got us to where we are now where if you look at all the indicators they're basically the same some of us are doing a bit better but the majority of the stats are, haven't really changed too much but I think what's happened now, especially with Black Lives Matter, is people, this generation are realising that that was a mistake. That actually we do need to have much more fundamental change. Um, and it's not old. I'm, I'm old anyway. So I'm an old man, so I'm supposed to be like critical of young people, right? That's my <laughs> job or something. But no, I think there's a lot of 
good stuff is happening. And I think this generation understand that we've kind of come to it. We went down a cul-de-sac. This, this is why I say it's, a, it's bad to do the wrong things because you actually end up going down a cul-de-sac and then you have to turn around and come back. Whereas if we just had gone a different direction, we wouldn't have to do that in the first place. So yes, I am positive. I think this generation gets it. I mean, I'm not your publisher. You don't have to be optimistic. No, I am optimistic. This is, even though I wrote a book, called The Psychosis of Whiteness <laughs> that tells you you can't fix whiteness and the last book said you can't fix capitalism. That's, it, sounds, it sounds like it's negative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it does. But it's actually not. This is the radical argument is always the most positive. It's, this, is, this is a tre- tre- treacle, 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 not treacle, tri- trilogy. Trilogy. Trilogy of books where I wrote Back to Black about Black Revolution and said, look, we need to do this and everybody looked at me like, Why? So I wrote two books to say, look, this is why you need to do revolution because you cannot fix the system. It is not broken. It's doing what it's meant to do. Mm-hmm. But we can do something else. Mm-hmm. That's the truly optimistic. We can actually build a completely different That is society. so helpful because, uh, and I'm about to open it up to you, so please be ready with your questions. But my last question was going to be, what do we do, Kende? So that, it's, it's the hardest question if you are part of this discourse and you're part of this project of black liberationary thought, what, what, what is the roadmap? What is the blueprint to creating a different future? Um, so uh, in Back to Black, I made the argument for black revolution. Yeah. And I still believe this. Is, this is, you go 50 years ago, I love Malcolm X. Malcolm's talking about revolution. It wouldn't have been mad. It wouldn't have been a thing which sounded crazy like when I say it because the, the world was on the precipice of having some kind of revolution. And in the last 50 years, and this is why the anti-racism topic is so damaging, we've kind of convinced ourselves that we don't need that anymore. Right, um, but we do. <laughs> we really, 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 really do. So I can give you a, a kind of a point by point black revolution. We started the Harambe organization of Black Unity. In fact, I usually carry a QR code around. So if you want to join, um, we're planning to have a Congress of African People in 2025 for Malcolm's 100th birthday, where the, the, for the black revolution essentially you create a global organization that's like a black government that doesn't need to deal with all the other governments. That's possible. That's doable, and we're doing it. All right. So I'll give you the black people answer. And I, that's the only answer I have. <laughs> I don't, I don't, the, other, the other side, I don't know. And I don't, it's not really my job to say. I will just say, you need to think differently. I don't know. So my favorite part in the book is I managed to keep a shrug, shrug emoji in the book. You do. <laughs> I've never seen that before. I, I, know, I get it. And, and there's also some, um, every time you mention Tony Sewell, it yeah. says sewage. Yes. And then it's crossed out. <laughs> I appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought but, that was appropriate. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of wider society, white, let's say white people, I don't know. But I think it's important to have an uncom- to, to start with the premise that the conversation should be uncomfortable uh, and take it from there. I think that is a really important thing to do, I would say. Thank I don't you, know if I answered the question. I think it's a good start. I'm curious for your question. So we've got a roving mic. Uh, please try and keep them short so we can get as many in. And I would appreciate if it is a question rather than a comment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, don't be shy. Who wants to go first? Hi, so uh, my background a bit. Uh, my name is Melanie. I was born in apartheid South Africa. So one of the things about racism, sadly, is that I experienced it very early in my life and, of course, continue to do so. So while I love Nelson Mandela, one of the things I did not agree with was his approach to peaceful protesting. Of course, it didn't work. It didn't work in Sharpville in the 60s. It didn't work in Soweto in 76. So my question essentially is, well, I'll make the statement first. There's still this expectation that's being placed on black people to somehow explain racism, educate white people on racism. 
And there's still this expectation where we have to somehow tolerate it. You'll hear people say things like, oh, but my uncle is just old. He hasn't seen many black people. And my aunt, of course, is screw him. Black people have been around for ages. That's not my problem. We were not invented yesterday. So my question is, do you think that's ever going to change? This expectation that's being placed on black people to somehow answer questions about racism, educated others about racism, and then, of course, having to tolerate the racism. Thank you. Well, South Africa, I've been to South Africa a few times, so South Africa does feature... You, what do you call Nelson Mandela in your book? <laughs> There's two things, a sellout and an Uncle Tom leader. Yes, you and do. Uncle, and, yes, you do. Whoa, 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 look at that, go to that. Yes, you do. <laughs> but it's important, Uncle Tom, again, there's a whole chapter, black skin, black skin, white psychosis, where I go through a whole load of terms and she will go, ooh, can you say coon? Yes, you can. You can now because I wrote it in a book, right? So, so, so. Uh, but Uncle Tom, is, Uncle Tom is a really interesting one, right? Because... And Mandela is a perfect example because uh, Uncle Tom, we often think about like House Negro. It's not that. Uncle Tom is somebody like, Ma- again, to call, I just caught lots of Malcolm. Malcolm, who do you think, who do you think uh, Malcolm called Uncle Tom more than anybody else? Who, uh, who Martin was? Luther King. Martin Luther King, all the time. And the idea that Malcolm changed and they were friends, when they, that's total nonsense. <laughs> they met one time, there's an interview nine days before Malcolm dies in Canada, and they say to him, well, now you support civil rights, uh, would you stop calling uh, Martin Luther King and Uncle Tom? And he says, uh, yes, I would, because Americans, can, they like to sue. So now I just call him <laughs> Uncle Martin. What's his actual answer? Malcolm's funny. Like Malcolm, listen to a Malcolm speech. Um, and the reason why, why Uncle Tom is a particular character who's kind of put, what Malcolm says is they're, they're dressed up, put up, put, made a celebrity by white people, which isn't 100% true with Mandela, but becomes true, um, become this figurehead. And then the important thing for Uncle Tom, people, black people have to follow them. So can be bad enough, he's not an Uncle Tom. I don't know any black people that would be happy if she became prime minister. We'd all be like, oh, God. That's, yeah. that's She's actually something that was like a failed Uncle Tom. <laughs> yeah, she's like she tried, but she quite didn't. an achievement. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Uncle Tom is really dangerous. People, that's why he's saying King, Uncle Tom. Not necessarily, it's not, it's not necessarily they're trying to do bad things. Like King, Malcolm has lots of respect for King. Mandela probably thought he was doing the right thing. But Mandela literally tells you in his autobiography that he sold out. It's not even like he doesn't hide it. By himself, negotiate with ANC, with the um, apartheid leaders, came to this settlement that nobody else wanted. This settlement about tolerating, we've got to tolerate the whites, keep the white, keep. And the reason South Africa is in the state it is today is because primarily, not all, not completely Mandela, but Mandela is a huge part of that. And we all praised him and let, let us lead him into the wrong, lead us down yes, the wrong which place. Is, which is why the EFF exists, which Julius Malema now saying, well, actually, no, this is, I'm not going to sit here and smile while people call me names. Yeah. I'll, I'll become extreme. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the example I use in the book, the psychosis, is <laughs> I went to what's it called, Aranya. Aranya is an all-white settlement. Oh yeah, like, in South Africa. You describe that. In the Aranya, yeah. I mean, oof, that was, that was psychosis. That's like a not this Nazi propaganda when you go in there. Everybody's yeah. white. The wife of the, the architect of the Yes, and guess who? And guess yeah. So the wife of wife of um, uh, Betsy Verwood. And guess who flew in on a helicopter to sit down and have tea with Betsy Verwood in the white settlement with Nelson Mandela? And then he said, it's like being in Soweto. Oh, my God. <laughs> what do you say? No, no. I, that. <laughs> I mean, it's so, <laughs> yeah. so when we have things like Uncle Tom, Mandela is a perfect example, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, fortunately, I don't know. But a good example of the, and again, why it's important to use those terms. And if you think about if you go to South Africa now, Mandela's not as popular at all. So I went recently, and I think people have realized 
And that's what I'm saying. But you but think he's you still things. as popular with global white audiences, oh, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is, that's a reason. Which is right, right. maybe why people should interrogate. If if a lot of white people find a black revolutionary figure friendly and cuddly, you wonder <laughs> what the real yeah, legacy yeah. is. Why, if you got a, if you got a statue with a where is it? Parliament Square. Yeah, that, that should just automatically disqualify you from black revolution. <laughs> uh, <laughs> next question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hi. Yeah, fascinating conversation. I'm curious about the view of your thinking. Bear in mind that you went to university, yeah. university, we have this, you know, um, or the gap between white and black students and trying to think about the needs of the black students in those establishments where majority of the teachers are white. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about how you see being able to, what the solution is to make things better for the black students in these types of um, engagement institutions. So this is an area where I do think actually I'm, even though I'm, look, I'm criticizing EDI and saying it's pointless, that, I'm not saying you shouldn't actually do it because you know, students, if you work at NHS, they, you do need to make them more, like people, our people are there and they, need to be, they shouldn't be getting all the problems we're having. And so if there are things you can do which make their experience a bit better, you should do those things. So I'm not totally against it at all. It's not going to fix it though. Like I, 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 we do black studies in the uni. My uni is just as racist as it was before we did it. In fact, it might be worse. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, and I might get fired because I, I criticise my uni a lot in the book. At least five, four or five times? Yeah. yeah I'm trying to get fired. Uh, but I do, uh, um, it might work. <laughs> <laughs> they usually don't mind when I say universities are racist, but they have a problem when I say this university is particularly racist because of this. So we'll see. But, um, so yeah, you need to do things. But on the other hand, you also need to recognise, and this is partly why I wrote the book, is one of the things my mum said to me when I went through this Really terrible racist experience, which I won't recount because of time. Um, I, I got upset. I was, I was, you know, took time off work. My mum looked at me. She, she just said, "That's what being black is," and walked up. And I was like, "Well, I expected I'd be getting treated better because I'm a professor. That's that's my fault, right? I need to understand what the place is. And had I had I navigated that with the understanding I'm not going to get treated fairly." I would have felt much better. But that's a hard thing to say to students or young people. Like, have your expectations be rock bottom. Like, do not expect to be treated with dignity or humanity. It's a hard, you know, yeah, if you have children or students. Black kids, no, they're, they're young as well. Tell them, no. Yeah. Do I tell them? Yeah. No, nah, maybe not the whole truth. But So, for example, when I get to tell, so a lot of us, I go to unis a lot, and students will say, I want to write this essay, I want to do that, someone's not letting me. And I'll just tell them, do the white thing. Do what you've been told. Just make it easier. We put so much emphasis on what, the, what we can do in these spaces. I got through university and through school by doing the white stuff. It's just a tick box. And then you can educate yourself elsewhere. Like, I don't write anything I write now. I didn't learn in university. That was from community. So we find nourishment in outside the uni or outside the job. And in the job, there's certain things you just got to tick, tick through, get through. You'll feel better, believe me. And maybe that's negative. I don't know. It's real. But it's, but it's the reality. It's real. Most Next question. Hi. Like echoing everyone, everyone's been saying fascinating conversation thus far. Uh, more of a stream of com consciousness that leads into a question. Uh, what are your thoughts on like the things that are going on in uh, Africa in relation to the new scramble for Africa, where you have uh, Burkina Faso, the president, you know, quoting Thomas Sankara, but then also saying that Russia is a friend of uh, Burkina Faso, the coup in Niger. There's a number of 
countries that seem to be somewhat rejecting um, the West and neo-imperial powers, but then also cozying up to other nations which are, I guess, looking to fund them or have uh, other interests that, that lay there. What, what are your thoughts? Is that, think, is that something that you think is going to spread throughout nations or do you think it's, a, once again, the uh, Uncle Tom House, well, House Negro and non-House Negro kind of politics between richer nations and poorer nations and those that are allied aligning themselves with uh, Western interests and powers and those that are looking to reject it. If you could comment on that, I'd be interested. Yeah, I mean, definitely positive that um, a lot of the, particularly Niger and the Francophone Africa is getting rid of France because France is terrible, right? Um, but, and this has happened, happened in Pan-Africanism earlier, jumping out, out of bed from one into another situation, out of the frying pan into the fire, doesn't, like, Russia's not your friend. Like, I'll be honest, China is definitely not your friend. Um, and so what we... If, if that's all it leads to, is let's just... And it's actually... Uh, W.B. Du Bois said this. We, can, we take the offer from the West or we take the offer from the East. Nah. You, the solution to this has always been African... We take the solution from Africa. And if that's where we're headed, this is good. If that's not where we're headed, it's just a different, different beast. Because China is, may end up being more dangerous than Europe in the long run. So, like I said, I'm positive in a sense, but it depends where it, where it goes, what direction it goes in. <laughs> I would, I've worked in all of the countries that have had coups, so Mali, Burkina Faso, Gabon, and Niger. Um, I know them all quite well. I think the difference is that the, the pro-Wagner group sentiment you're hearing is not an ideological belief in Russia. And so I think what's happening is a rejection of French colonialism, which is... That's not even overdue, because they, <laughs> these countries have been trying to reject French colonialism yeah, yeah. since they had French colonialism. Um, but I think it's more... It's, it's more the rejection of France than a genuine embrace of Russia. The thing that I think is, which I think is positive, I think the thing that obviously is like alarming is that these countries are still not on equal terms in the international system. So it's not like they can now, you know, the lesson from history shows us that when black revolutionaries try to build up their own country free from neo-imperialism, they get brought down, especially when they have strategic interests like coltan or uranium in Niger. Um, or oil in Gabon. So it's not like the world has changed and it's now going to stand back while, while new re- leaders come in and rebuild in a completely different model. But I do think it's fascinating to follow France, who is... But denial doesn't even begin. Yeah. I was talking to some diplomats the other day about how France... To British diplomats about how France is processing what's happened. And they almost kind of didn't understand the question. They were like, what do you mean processing? I mean, there's no conversation happening about what what this says about France and also what it means for Britain. It's yeah, yeah. not a conversation. The government is not sitting there being like, African countries are rejecting European colonialism. What does this mean for us? <laughs> nope. Psychosis, is it? Yeah. Bad. Delusion, hallucination, yeah. yes. Um, I'm afraid we have to end it there. I know. No, I'll tell you one more question, if, if there is one ready. Yeah, at the back. Thanks. Yeah, so um, my name's Naomi Bennett. Um, I'm a registered nurse and um, the founder of an, a nursing organisation called Equality for Black Nurses. Um, we're a grassroots organisation advocating for black nurses um, going in the NHS with the Nursing and Midwifery Council and with the DBS. Um, and one thing that I notice that repeats itself um, time and time again is that the, the authorities are constantly criticising black nurses for the most trivial issues and constantly profile them and target them. 
But the moment we introduce a subject of race or suggest um, our nurses might be being discriminated against, the, the tide turns quite swiftly and we, we're suddenly labelled as spreading hate and stirring racial t- tension. And, and my question is, um, h- how do we keep pushing on through those attitudes? Oh. That's a, that's a, that's a, so NHS is a tough one. I actually do work with a lot of NHS because there's so many problems in mm. NHS. And oftentimes it's black nurses. Uh, you have one, it's not, this the most diverse employer in the country. It's also the largest employer in the country. It completely relies on black and brown. It's, the, it's the basically the imperial NHS because it, it has to, it's always relied on our labor and still does. Um, but at the same time, massive problems, right? At who's, who's in management, who gets, who gets promoted. It's obviously racist. But one of the features of psychosis of whiteness is the inability to understand, even though it's like blatantly obvious, right? And so how do you navigate through that within this institution? With care, I would say. And also, so when I go and talk to NHS staff, you have to make, similarly with black studies, like, this is why I don't like the term allyship. It's not going to be because you have good allies in the institution that things change. That's not how things change. Things change when you make the conditions so that things have to change, right? And that can be, that can be protest, that can be strike, withdrawal of labour, things like that. Or that can be, for black studies, we got black studies because unis started charging students and we could recruit lots of students. And I just went and said, money. And they went, okay. Right. Market forces. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> just market forces. And one of the arguments you make with um, NHS, and this is why I say that when I'm talking to black staff groups, is you have to make the economic argument. Actually, if black staff feel undervalued, that means they're, they're going to have more sick days, they're going to have this, you're having tribunals because of all this racism in the thing. It's actually costing you more and you're being less efficient. So you have to, it's as horrible as it sounds, you have to take away the moral look after us argument because they don't care. And you have to make the, this is good economically for the institution argument. And those are the arguments that will make the difference. Or withdraw your labor, which is, I again, would, would recommend. Um, so they have to change. But it's one of those two. It can't be the allyship one. That's not, that's not going to get you in. But just because we have to finish and to bring it, thank you so much for the question and for your work. Yes. And um, to bring it back to the book, I think to do that requires you to stop believing in the institution, that if we just show them this is bad, they'll do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really, I think, the, the message of your book. It's stop waiting for them to decide to be humane <laughs> or to regard us as equals, but work out how we can build something. Yeah, we've been, that on, the is right, fair. Yeah. We've been on the right side of the argument for 500 years. It yeah. don't get you anywhere. You, it's, we need to understand these the hostile environments and understand that we need to build safety within them and then build, ultimately build stuff outside. Kehinde Andrews, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.